Hello, hello, and hello, everybody. Welcome back for another episode. If not now, when? In today's show, I am so beyond excited to welcome my friend Vince. Travel all the way from Dallas to join us today. We have Vincent Shane here with us. Vince, he brings twenty-five years of relevant entrepreneurial and operational experience in software and service space. Including launching and growing two successful startups. Today, he's a partner of、uh, Capri's Growth Capital. He's participating all different facets of investment process and supporting the portfolio company. Additionally, he's a CFO and COO of GeoForce, responsible spinning for finance, operation, marketing, human capital. You name it, he's on it. Uh, Vince also served on the board of GeoForce and Atlas RFID. He's a frequent speaker and panelist on different topics such as entrepreneurship, growth, capital strategy. Today he holds MBA from Duke and BS from UC Berkeley. With that, everybody, I am so beyond excited. Please join me to welcome Vince in the show with me. Vince, so excited to have you today with us. Yeah, glad、honor. to be here. So tell us how's all the journey began for you. So、uh, my name is Vincent Shea. I go by Vince.、Uh, I'm currently an investment partner at Cypress Growth Capital, a Dallas-based、uh, investment firm.、Uh, but my journey sort of starts in、uh, California.、Mm-hmm. I was born and raised in、uh, Southern California、uh, to two immigrant parents、uh, from Taiwan.、Uh, both came here for、uh, for business school for my dad and uh, undergrad uh, for my mom. Actually, here in the state of Texas at the University of Houston,、uh, so they came here, I guess, in the early seventies. In Texas. In Texas, yeah. But you、yeah. were born in California. They, they met the University of Houston and uh, uh, graduated in June, and had me in July in Los Angeles. Oh my god!、So、they、god. moved to July. My dad got a job as a in、uh, mergers and acquisitions at a at an oil and gas company, but not one in Texas, one in California,、uh, Getty Oil from the Estelle Getty family and the Getty Museum and things.、Uh, so they. Had me in L.A. I think my mom was eight months pregnant when they moved to Southern California, and I was born there. Oh my God!、Um, and、uh, you know, as immigrant parents, like a lot of them, they they raised four children. I'm the oldest of four. Yeah.、Uh, with two younger brothers and younger sibling, a younger sister. Yeah.、Uh, kind of a few of the core things I would say that sort of carried me through my life are probably a focus on education,、mm-hmm. uh, a focus on being very well rounded and having lots of different skills and interests and people and things in your life. Uh, and then、uh, kind of the ethic of hard work and always working. I remember、uh, I was twelve,、uh, thirteen years old. It was my first job, a paying job, I should say,、uh, working in the middle school cafeteria、uh, as a cashier that my mom encouraged me to do.、Uh, where instead of eating lunch for thirty minutes with my friends, I would spend the first ten, fifteen minutes as the cashier and got paid by the、uh, cafeteria to do that、wow. at the age of twelve or thirteen. So it's just sort of that work ethic and always、uh, finding things to do and be productive and. You know、yeah. that kind of stuff. What What made you working so hard in the early age, Vince? I think、uh, being the oldest ch- sibling made a difference. I was、uh, my sister, for instance, is 15 years younger,、oh. so I've always had to have that、uh, sort of big brother or even father、yeah. uh, figure to, to the younger siblings,、uh, and sort of set a good example for them.、Mm-hmm. Also, my parents got divorced when I was 14, 15 years old, and so、mm-hmm. sort of the last few years before I went to college,、mm-hmm. uh, I was sort of the father. Father for them、uh, around the house, so, so trying to set a good example for them,、uh, trying to、uh, um, you know, instill that example in them that would help them in their lives, hopefully. Wow!、Uh, among other things,、uh, you're such a leader in such a young age. Yeah, was it difficult to grow up as an immigrant family in California at that time? It was、uh, definitely unique. I can only imagine what my parents were going through in kind of the seventies and eighties.、Uh, but as a young child, I never really felt it until I was older. Uh, kind of the difficulty of being, let's call it, different than、mm. uh, sort of everyone else around you and、mm. your、uh, and your school, on your sports teams, and your neighborhood, things like that.、Mm. Uh, I think a big、uh, a big thing that helped me a lot、uh, growing up was、uh, initially I didn't grow up in neighborhoods that、uh, had a lot of minorities or Asians in them, but once I got to high school and then into college、uh, at Arcadia High School in Southern California and then UC Berkeley、mm. in Northern California for college. Uh, there were a lot more Asians around, a lot more Chinese people around, and I think seeing the example of other、uh, Chinese people being the student body president or being the、uh, captain of the basketball team or various leadership positions 
kind of gave me the confidence or the uh, example, if you will, that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. To say, hey, I could do that too. I could yeah. be the you know leader in some high school thing, uh, which I did a few of, or president of my dorm in college, mm. things like that. Uh, just having that example, I think, helps. Just having that person that you can look up to and say, hey, wait a minute, I could do that too. Yeah. Uh, I think those those stories are pretty powerful, why representation, I think, matters in lots of things. Yeah. Uh, something I remember very clearly kind of fast-forwarding a little bit Yeah. is my— uh, Teenage boys now, back then they were probably three or four years old during the height of uh, Jeremy Lin's run in Linsanity in the NBA, uh, out of the, what, 12 years ago now, almost yeah, 2011, yeah, yeah, 2012 yeah. timeframe. They were probably three or four years old and they're watching TV and they saw Jeremy Lin and got really excited. Yeah. Uh, or they saw a commercial with Jeremy Lin on it or the cover of uh, Sports Illustrated with Jeremy Lin on it. They got very excited. Mm-hmm. That's not something I had growing up to mm-hmm. see a representation like that. Uh, but that made them sort of believe they could do things and 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 also be you know a famous athlete or whatever. Yeah. Uh, so I think that matters quite a bit and something I enjoyed once again to high school and college when I saw more of that around mm-hmm. and was able to take leadership positions that helped me in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Um, that might not have been present if I uh, didn't attend Arcadia High School at UC Berkeley and had the the chance to do those things. Yeah. But also, you choose yourself along the journey. You decide to show up being a leader first, and then the opportunity presents itself. Exactly. Then what's next after you go to uh, college? So I went to UC Berkeley, uh, mostly because uh, four children and my mom said, you're going to a public school somewhere. (laughs) And uh, I looked at a map, and UC Berkeley was close enough but far enough from home. I wanted to be able to spread my wings and get out a little bit, but not be so far away from my younger siblings and my family and my you know, media family, everything that you couldn't get home quickly. So Northern California was an hour flight away, close enough. Uh, went there, uh, great experience, like I mentioned earlier, uh, active in some student government things, active in leadership in my fraternity, uh, Pi Kappa Phi. Nice. Uh, did a couple of uh, uh, intramural sports uh, like basketball and, and soccer and football, uh, things like that, just to stay active. And like I was mentioning earlier, my parents always wanted us to be really well-rounded. Mm-hmm. Uh, so took a lot of different classes, even outside my major, which mm-hmm. ended up being uh, economics and finance. Uh, took like, you know, uh, language, different language things that weren't required just to be exposed. Wow. Uh, various classes in like engineering, computer science, even though I wasn't an engineer or scientist, just to, again, be exposed and have that kind of balanced, uh, balanced view on things. So what do you find out after taking all the variety of classes? I mean, I think especially being at a university like Berkeley, uh, you just get exposed to so many smart and uh, interesting and uh, a wide variety of types of people, and you learn so much from them, uh, more so than you do even, honestly, from like the textbooks or the yeah. classroom so- settings sometimes. It's just the interactions you have, yeah. the friends you make, uh, and those connections you have, uh, I think made a big difference in yeah. shaping kind of who I was uh, as a person. What is similar to your, t- your experience at Duke, since we talk about schools? Yeah, so a few years after uh, graduating from Berkeley, I did go to uh, Duke University, the Fuqua School of Business, which I think you went to as well, (laughs) uh, in their uh, cross-continent executive program. Oh, yes, yes, yes. yes. Similar idea here. I met, Mm -hmm. uh, there's 120 of us in the class uh, from all around the world and lots of different disciplines from, call it finance and consulting, to engineering, to scientists, to uh, one of our classmates was a station director for MTV Russia. Oh, my God. Uh, things like that. Just a wide variety of people uh, who all kind of bonded together in this uh, yeah. in this residency setting that they have at Duke yeah. uh, for the cross-continent program. Uh, made a lot of close friends there. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, one thing I speak about a lot is that uh, being in that thing, that setting with 120 people around the world, uh, going back to the representation point, I think a big part for me was being a few of my classmates said that they never interacted with a, for instance, Chinese person or Asian American person in their life beyond maybe seeing it on TV or a movie or And what year was that? This, Just so have a context. This was a 2005, 2006 time frame. Okay, got it. Uh, and so I think I wanted to be a good representation to some of these classmates who had never yeah, interacted yeah. with a person uh, that, you know, quote unquote, looked like me yeah. uh, in, a, in any kind of setting. And so kind of made it a point to organize events, made it a point to socialize across mm-hmm. different let's call it groups yeah. uh, of people mm-hmm. uh, during the lots of free time that we have between between uh, classes and things uh, and sort of take on a leadership role uh, mm-hmm. in the class, uh, organizing things, um, getting people you know, riled up to do certain things for mm-hmm. basketball games or social outings and things like that. Uh, in many ways, I felt like I had to represent not just myself, but also sort of you know, in this case, it doesn't sound weird to say, but Chinese or Asian American people too. Yeah. Certain ones of my classmates who are some of my best friends now. You had a mission. Yeah. That's I didn't perfect. know I had the mission going in, but it turned out to be my mission. Yeah. 
life is beautiful has a magic to unfold the most beautiful lesson to us along the way. Exactly. So how does that transition into startup world, Vince, for you? So my kind of goal, I think I wouldn't say early on, like I wouldn't say I wanted to be an entrepreneur when I was 10 years old, but probably in my early to mid-20s, I realized at some point I wanted to do this. And so actually a big reason why I went to Duke was to to learn all facets of business to be able to go start a business at some point. Why, why you want to start a business in the first place? Um, m- mostly for the, I go back to my earlier point about my parents wanting to be well-rounded. Uh-huh. And I wanted to be able to do lots of different things. And you can only do that really if you start your own company or running your own business in the sense that for better or worse, you get thrown into it and you're in charge of sales and marketing and finance and this and that and everything else in between. Yeah. Uh, I initially started my career in management consulting. Mm-hmm. Uh, working uh, at Arthur Anderson before the Enron yeah. situation happened in the early 2000s. Yeah. At Arthur Anderson and then Alvarez and Marcel uh, in the corporate restructuring groups where we worked with distressed or troubled companies uh, that hired our team to come in and, and kind of restructure their operations, their uh, core core business, yeah. their financials, things like that. Tell us about that because not many people understand distressed situation in the startup world. Yeah, so this is these are not startup. I'm not startup are, business sense. Yeah, these are bigger companies that are generally owned by private equity or even mm-hmm. publicly traded in some cases, and for various reasons, uh, the economy, uh, the shifting customer base, uh, maybe too much debt in a lot of cases, their companies needed to be restructured mm. uh, to perform better. Let's just say financially in mm-hmm. general, but also just in general. Yeah, and so they would. <laughs> They would hire, and a lot of times my boss would come in and be the interim CEO, interim CFO, interim something O yeah. <laughs> of the company for a period of time. And they would bring in me, I guess at the time I was in my mid to, you know, mid-20s, let's say, to kind of work on different aspects of the business, uh, whether it be warehouses, looking at warehouses, looking at headcount, mm-hmm. looking at uh, marketing and the catalog setting, mm-hmm. which is one I worked on. Uh, things like that, like how do you be more efficient with certain things? How do you decide mm-hmm. which restaurants or which product lines are ones you should keep, ones you should optimize, ones you should get rid of, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think learning a lot about the business from that perspective as a consultant was great yeah. uh, because you get to see every part of it and understand what's not working to try to figure out how to make it better, uh, which is a great, I think, skill set to have yeah. uh, is to understand sort of you learn a lot from kind of, I won't say failures, but you learn a lot from things that didn't work out of course, and, and learn how to do them better. What is the number one reason those big company or corporate that did not work out at the time? So, so many, many reasons, but oftentimes they get ahead of their skis on like debt and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of raising, yeah, over leverage, raising too much and can't service the debt. Their, you know, their cash flows or the operating income can't service the amount of debt they have. Mm-hmm. And the issue with debt usually is that it's sort of fixed mm-hmm. and has a lot of covenants tied to it that mm-hmm. restrict mm-hmm. certain activities, growth, things like that. So it's tight. And usually have some form of a balloon payment or due dates and things mm-hmm. uh, that make it harder for a, a company that's trying to, that not going to say grow, just trying to evolve or change mm-hmm. uh, to, to pivot on things. Mm-hmm. So a lot of times it's too much that, um, you know, a lot of times it's also, I think this is a common problem with a lot of companies that um, you're very good at knowing what your company is, like very myopically focused on your business, your industry, your way of doing things, your technology. And it's hard to sometimes lose sight of the newer things out there. Uh, and sometimes having either an outside perspective from a consultant or having people change careers or change industries or outside people coming in sort of helps, mm-hmm. helps you see things from a fresh perspective. And For I think sure. sometimes they get stuck in that. Uh, in that world, like kind of the common story yeah. you hear about like Blockbuster renting movies versus Netflix doing things differently. And Blockbuster has been doing whatever for so long. Yeah. You know, so I think that that's sometimes an issue as well that we saw mm-hmm. uh, in restructuring. Innovation dilemma, right? Exactly. Yeah. So how do you start the first business? So after kind of that about seven or eight year career in consulting, uh, went to the Duke executive program mm-hmm. for a couple of years and right off the bat made lots of friends, like I was describing earlier. Uh, including uh, the uh, two people that uh, you know my startups uh, startups started with uh, from business school, Jimmy McLean and Robert Fuqua <laughs> uh, from the business school programs. So met them early on. Uh, we were in a I think it was an operations class talking about RFID in Korea of all places. And uh, me and Rob said, "Hey, we want to go start a company. We're going to quit our jobs and we're going to go start this company. This is a middle of business school, like maybe six to nine months in." And we're start this company. We don't quite know what it's going to be, but RFID seems to be this big thing in 2005 with Walmart, DOD, everyone's doing it. So we said we would start a consulting firm that would help companies uh, kind of research and figure out what they need and then go and implement RFID systems, mm-hmm. including kind of the software, the hardware, the 
configuration, getting it all deployed, things like that. Mm-hmm. So consulting model. Basically a consulting model, services mm-hmm. model. Mm-hmm. There's hardware they paid us for, but also services primarily hired a bunch of engineers to go and implement systems. Mm-hmm. And the good and bad thing for us was that kind of early on, the first, I call it year, 18 months, we landed probably 10 or 12 projects with some relatively good names like Honda Manufacturing, uh, London City Airport, uh, Seal there, some pretty good names. Yeah. Hired us to do these projects, but in hindsight, they hired us probably because they just wanted to try something, this, you know, dabble in RFID, and they wouldn't invest a million bucks in it and give us that money to go almost do a science experiment for them to get it going. But it was revenue, it was real customers. We hired up to, I don't know, 50, 60 people uh, to do all that work. Then the big lesson learned for us was that uh, in 08, 09 timeframe, this is like a year or two in, uh, the recession hit, uh, the banking crisis, all that. Yeah, of course. And in the span of, I think it was something like six or so months, we lost almost all of our clients where they basically said, let's finish this up or don't even finish it up, but we don't have any investment to make an RFID or this system now. So kind of our consulting model or services model uh, all dried up. We had to lay off almost everybody oh my uh, God. in about three to six months. Uh, not quite everybody, but close to everybody was because it, the projects weren't there anymore. Was it hard? That, that was difficult times. We weren't paying ourselves as the uh, co-founders. Uh, definitely a lot of stress with the employees, but also the customers and investors. And oh, yeah. At this time, our investors were sort of friends and family. Yeah. So, you know, the best and worst kind of investor. Yeah. Uh, worse in the sense that you feel really bad letting them down Yeah. Uh, in this time frame. But so how do you move through that? So moment? at this time, we also then went and looked for venture capital and had some venture capitalists come in. And As a consulting company? That's Yeah, some venture capitalists that came in, kind of local VCs that were interested. Uh, kind of, I would say more like seed money, maybe not quite VC yet, okay. seed type money. Okay. Uh, so initially we had done friends and family and kind of self-funding and mm. gotten projects that paid for you know, employees and things, mm-hmm. and then uh, raise this kind of seedish money. Uh, but one thing the guys I think about that we then did, I remember having this conversation, um, you know, over dinner one night, for a long dinner one night with uh, a few people at, at, at our company, uh, deciding, hey, wait a minute, we need to pivot into like one vertical with some of our software. So for a lot of these companies we've been doing, we build, I mentioned earlier, kind of a hardware component integration, but also a software component. Mm-hmm. You build customized each we build company? build customized for each company. Oh, wow. But we were able to maintain the intellectual property for the most part or the know-how. And so we decided we got to pick one vertical and it ended up being industrial construction because we had a few projects that we had done for some industrial construction companies in the Southeast. And we said we could, I won't say reuse, but sort of leverage what we had done there to turn into a product. It was going to take a little bit of time to get it to become more of a productized offering. But we made that shift, and that shift, the long story short, is what kind of allows us to go from kind of a peak to a trough, back to a peak, and then eventually do uh, you know, a lot more projects with a lot more companies uh, where they started paying us on a more of a software-based model. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't call it quite recurring software, but sort of reoccurring software. Okay, what's the difference they, two words? As they do projects, like a 19-month, 20-month project, they use our software and pay us for 19, 20 months. Got it. And then the project ends for a few months, and then they deploy the, the system again on a different project and they pay us again for 20 months or whatever. Got it. So it sort of happens for a long time, then kind of goes down for a little bit, happens again for a long time. Yeah. But you got multiple cu- customers who kind of always have projects going on. Yeah. Uh, so that, that shift was nice and uh, allowed us to eventually um, uh, do a deal with private equity yeah. uh, and then sell to a strategic uh, in, in Europe. Was it, you just sell in Europe, not selling the business? S- sold to a strategic acquirer in Europe. Oh, yeah. wow. Eventually, it... that's down the road Yeah. Uh, once the private equity guys got involved and, and helped the, help structure the company for that. Yeah. Wow. Uh, a couple questions. One, how was the experience of starting a business? Sounds like you've been thinking about this for some time, and now you're in this journey at the time with your partners. What is one thing that surprised you about starting a business that you have not anticipated before? I would say maybe not surprise, yeah. but... Um, Certainly, I think what most people don't appreciate is like you learn in, let's call it school, whether it be business school, uh-huh. undergrad or whatever, you learn a lot of the core things like, mm-hmm. I don't know, finance and operations and marketing and spreadsheets and <laughs> PowerPoints and analysis and all that. But probably the most important thing, two most important things in a company, any company, for whatever what size, is sort of sales and people or sales and HR, let's call it. Mm-hmm. And there's not really any real classes and probably for a good reason on how to manage people and how to manage sales or how to get sales. It's sort of... You get it by experience, honestly. And I think that's something that uh, we learned the hard way in some ways is dealing with like, you know, how to make sales, how to convince people to, especially a new product, new company, mm-hmm. new all that. What did you uh, learn? Sales. What is one thing that you think is key to your success as you are convincing those or getting those customers on board with your vision? 
I think at some point it's a trust relationship, like、mm. anything in life, whether it be a marriage relationship, a friendship, a club you're in, or a company you're in, or in this case, a kind of let's call it I don't know vendor customer relationship or whatever. It all starts with sort of having a relationship with each other and trust. Because、mm. uh, there's a million different sales tactics and different,、yeah. uh, you know, books or seminars or methods you could try, and there's all these things that say do this but don't do that, and <laughs> the other books says do that but don't do that.、Uh, all those different things, but at some level, even if you're selling to enterprise or selling B two B, you're still selling to a person at a business、yeah. who's making a person making a decision,、mm-hmm. not a robot or computer making a decision. I love that、yeah. in general, and so you do need to get to know the people and, and build that trust relationship. If someone's going to spend whether it be a hundred dollars or a million dollars with you,、mm. inherently you're saying I'm going to trust you with my million dollars or my hundred dollars、mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to go do something that's going to be of value to me,、mm-hmm. and that starts with kind of the human element of do they they trust you as a customer vendor or in my current case as an investor in a portfolio company?、Yeah. Do they trust you and get you know? Have, and that takes getting to know each other、mm-hmm. um, and building that relationship over time.、Mm-hmm. Um, It's amazing, and, and that's how you get there. You know? Yeah, I love that. So Vince, with that, you have grown the business, right? Pivot, major pivoted in O eight, and grow this in something really sounds like you are very proud. Was it hard for you all to walk away to sell at the end? Uh. No is a short answer.、Um, I think everything in life there's stages, and、mm-hmm. we talk about kind of the the second company and and what I'm doing now. You'll understand what I'm saying here. There's different stages in life, and、uh, I think there's natural progression. Like some people are better. I'm just gonna say this generically: getting companies from zero to five.、Mm-hmm. Some are better from five to twenty. Some are better from twenty to fifty. And some people get companies from fifty to hundred, whatever.、Mm-hmm. Different stages of a company. I think we all have to understand. Sort of, all of us have strengths and weaknesses,、mm-hmm. and all of us have things that we're more passionate or less passionate about.、Mm-hmm. And I think what I realize, at least, I'll speak for myself only for now.、Um, I'm most passionate about sort of the building of a company, the processes, everything's new.、Mm. Going back to my earlier earlier point, just、yeah. my parents want us to do lots of things. Yeah. And at a startup, for better or worse, at my companies, I was involved from the beginning on everything kind of sales and marketing. To operations, to finance, legal, HR, so the wide spectrum of everything except the technical things. Let's call it the deeply technical things, I should say. And you get a chance to do that at a startup, startup, or at a mid-sized company or emerging growth company.、But、once you get much bigger, or for instance, owned by private equity at a much different scale, it's a very different type of operation.、Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of more, more financial engineering, a little bit more,、uh, you know, optimizing this or that and things like that versus sort of building, building. There's still an element of building and growing、mm-hmm. and all that, of course. At that larger stage or later stage, but the earlier stage where you don't really know what's going on and you're still trying to figure、mm. things out, you like and you that. You sort of put your head on, do everything. Yeah,、uh, that kind of feeds. That's what I'm passionate about.、Nice. It's like building something, whatever it is,、yeah. versus like running something, so to speak, or optimizing something. Yeah,、and、I think you get that chance. So at some point, you get to a stage in your company, your life, or whatever, where it's better to hand the reins off.、Mm-hmm. No different than when I used to coach my children in like soccer and basketball. I coached them from I don't know age four to age eight or nine. <laughs> and at some point, my soccer skills or basketball skills are limited, and they need a—I don't want to say professional, but a better coach right, right, right. to do that next stage. To get, if they want to get better at that,、yeah. or at school, or music, or whatever,、so、the same thing with the company here.、Uh, there's different stewards of of your company or your money or whatever that handle things at different stages.、Mm-hmm. I think that realization makes it so you're not. You're you're bittersweet because you're,、yeah. you're kind of like watching your kids grow up,、mm-hmm. but you also are happy because you know it's in better hands or it's going to、mm-hmm. you know, do better with the、mm-hmm. the new leaders, the new investors, the new owners, or whatever. Nice. So let's talk about second company. Yeah. What happened there? So I mentioned earlier that、uh, um, you know met people in business school. In this case, a guy named Jimmy McLean,、uh, who at the time you know I came from this consulting background. He came from an oil and gas background, working on.、Um, Uh, rigs and platforms as an engineer uh, for uh, for oil field services companies,、uh, so very different backgrounds, different very different upbringings. He's from the south, I'm from the west coast, things like that. But hit off really well as、uh, as friends in school, and I sort of kept in touch even after school.、Uh, so he saw me and the other person doing Atlas, starting Atlas about a year or two ahead of him. Saw what we're doing and said, "Hey Vince, you know, I saw you guys raise money from friends and family, including himself. He he invested in our company as well. A lot of our classmates did." Uh, can you help me with a sort of raising the money for this thing, like the friends and family round,、uh, and you know review the business plan, get things going.、Uh, what else did I do? Website, uh, uh, pricing strategy, things like that. HR strategy for who to hire, things like that. So I was still sort of involved in the first company, sort of making that exit to private equity and things, or selling,、mm-hmm. and sort of helping、uh, the second one with getting things going. 
but not involved full time, sort of as a consultant. In fact, I famously was paid 10 shares an hour for the first two years, I guess it was, to help with sort of those initial things to get the company going. And you help his company? Yes, the second company. Got it. Okay. 10 shares an hour. <laughs> we kept a little spreadsheet, you know, 30 minutes here, two hours here, whatever, while I was sort of finishing up the other company. Nice. Um, and then at some point he said, hey, you know, we've kind of gotten off the ground a little bit. Would you be willing to move to Dallas to help us like really, really build this thing up and grow it? And at the time it was about four or five people. Mm. And uh, we were living in San Francisco at the time and I had a three-year-old, two-year-old and a baby in the belly, Aww. my wife's belly. And so we said, yeah, let's move to Dallas. I mean, Dallas seems like a good place to live. We've never really actually been here before to Texas. Uh, so we moved here, uh, again, when the company was maybe four or five people. Uh, and like I mentioned earlier, sort of, you know, he was more of an engineer. So he definitely was involved in all the business, but gravitated towards the engineering side for obvious reasons, the product and, you know, the thing we had to build for the customers on the software, the hardware, the whole solution. And it sort of hired me and I came in to sort of help build out the rest of the company. Uh, at the beginning. And then over time, you know, we obviously hired people to to take over certain parts of the company that were way more equipped to to do things. I was talking about different stages. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the very, very beginning, for better or worse, you're doing everything, including the website and talking to customers and, you know, figuring out how to pay for things and raising money and uh, dealing with HR issues, whatever. <laughs> what made you successful in raising money in both rounds? Because first round you raised it in 2008, which is not the best time, mm-hmm. uh, quote-unquote. And what, what, do you, what do you think is the number one yeah. reason that you are successful doing that back I think then? It, I think it goes back to what I said earlier about everything starts with a relationship and trust between humans. Mm-hmm. You know, no matter what formula or you know, pitch deck someone says, you need to use this pitch deck versus that pitch deck. It still just comes down to people and relationships. And so in my career, I've raised, on the entrepreneur side, operator side, I raised money from banks, uh, friends and family, angels, let's call it venture capital and seed money, and private equity. All kind of, for the most part, the spectrum. And also banks and the smaller side and banks on, like, say, the venture debt or much larger mm-hmm. side. So kind of the spectrum of ways you can raise money, almost all of them between my two companies we've been through kind of all those different stages. So walk us through the differences and the pros and cons. And so I would say that once you get to the later stages, the bigger stages, there's, let's just say, a little bit more quantitative and spreadsheets and numbers and metrics that matter in the later stages. But I think your question is more on the earlier side. Of course. Where you're raising money from, let's just say, generically, grandma, grandpa, business school friends, neighbors, ex-co-workers, friends, friends of friends, um, and let's say angels even. That becomes more of a personal thing where, yes, they look at the spreadsheet, the business plan, they care about that stuff. But at some level, they're really betting on, quote, unquote, you. <laughs> they, they, they've met you or they know you. Maybe they've known you for 40 years, whatever. They've known you for a long time in some context or mm-hmm. they've been referred to you. Mm-hmm. And they sort of meet you and uh, I don't want to dismiss the business plan or dismiss the product or the idea or the market or whatever. But that's almost secondary to sort of like, I know John Doe or Jane Doe and I believe that John or Jane is going to be able to mm-hmm. have the tenacity, the resilience, the brains, the <laughs> what are all the things you need to be a successful entrepreneur? You yeah. have all those things to go and make this successful yeah. uh, in one way or another. And if not, they're going to learn from it. Uh, and I think at the beginning, <laughs> that's what it comes from. It's like this this trust that people have yeah. in you, just generally from relationships. And as you progress up that stack from like friends and family angels to like more professional or institutional investors, that still matters quite a bit, of course. Yeah. But there is a little bit more that vetting has to happen on the more, let's call it quantitative or more of course. more uh, structured type things that they look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, but kind of initially, I think it was just sort of going out there and having that mindset that, uh, you know, showing the passion, showing the, you know, having had the relationships that were built over many years. Uh, in some cases, my grandmother, since that day I was born, literally, <laughs> <laughs> to say, hey, I believe in Vince yeah. in this case or Vince's team or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, 50 grand or 200 grand or 100 grand of money in this thing is a semi-prudent, I don't want to say prudent, but semi-prudent use of my money or way to allocate my money. And so I think earning that trust takes time, takes, I mean, honestly, talk to maybe 100, 200 people and only like 20 or 30 will actually invest. But 10% is not yeah, bad. That's, that's still motivation. It's like, there's two motivations. One is that we used to have a, uh, a picture on the wall in our desk, a picture of the, the family and the babies of the people who invest in us. Aww. So it's motivation, like, the one motivation was I want to make sure I don't lose the money for that kid that yeah. my, my friend invested. That's his kid. The other motivation was the other, like you said, 89% didn't invest. Almost like a little chip on the shoulder. Of like, I want to prove that they should have invested. 
and I don't want to say make them feel bad. That's that, definitely not that, but sort of like, hey, look, see, you know, uncle who didn't invest or business school friend who didn't invest, say, look, this thing actually did well, you know? And so there's sort of both of those motivations at play uh, that help, um, help drive things, I would say. That's incredible. So how was that transition from startup to a VC world? Walk us through that. Yeah, so uh, I'll talk about the second company a little bit more here since we sort of talked a lot about the first. Yeah. The very beginning, uh, it's, you know, five of us in a room, basically. And then eventually you're, I think we had like eight offices around the world, like in Australia, Brazil, Canada, a few in the U.S., things like that. So just very different scale. And you go from five people to 150 people or whatever it is. Uh, you don't know everybody anymore. You don't know everybody as well as you did when all five of you knew everything about everyone for better or worse. <laughs> Uh, so there's that kind of transition sort of from a scale standpoint. I think the other big thing is you go from, do you, I don't know if you know this term MacGyver. There's a show in the, like the 80s, there was a show called MacGyver where he'd be in situations where he's got to get out of a room or fix something and he has nothing around him except like his two hands and some gum. And he's got to like, figure out how to get out of the room or break into the door or fix something. Okay. And I think at the very beginning of a startup, you kind of do a lot of MacGyver work oh. where you don't have any resources, you don't have any money or people or things. And you're sort of have a scramble to just go get things done. Um, you're scrambling. We call it the scrambling stage where the ball's over there. Everyone runs over there to go solve that problem for the customer. The ball's over there. Everyone runs over there to solve that problem for the product or whatever it is. Uh, and there's five of you, 10 of you, 20 of you. That's all you do is you scramble. Like to use the sports analogy that I was talking about earlier, like when kids are playing soccer when they're five years old, wherever the ball is, all the kids go there. They don't play their positions. As you get older in sports, or you get older in a company, people fixing their positions. Like you are not maybe silos, but you're in this f- position. You're servicing these customers versus those customers. You're just doing marketing versus sales. You're doing analogy. that. The very beginning, everyone's doing everything. And so I think what venture capital, to answer your question, does is it comes in and instills a sense of discipline and accountability that maybe existed in yourself. Kind of I mentioned earlier the accountability I had to the pictures of my investors' kids or, you know, all that kind of accountability, but sort of self-driven accountability. Mm-hmm. This is nice because it's an external driven accountability mm. and sense of like process and trying to grow up a little bit, mm-hmm. starting to play a little bit more like positions instead of positionless mm-hmm. uh, roles in the company, uh, starting to force like some outside perspective. Like I was saying earlier, the outside perspective helps, yeah. uh, helps you see things that maybe you don't know is because you're so entrenched in your one thing all day, yeah. every day. And someone who's zoomed out and looks at 50 companies at a time or different industries, different size sizes of companies can bring a different perspective to your company. Uh, so that's a good transition, I would say, from the investor perspective. They bring that to the table that you wouldn't necessarily get from just hiring another person in the company. You see it's very driven, things. What drives you? What drives me? Uh, so a lot of times people ask you, like, do you like winning more than losing? Or do you like, you know, do you like, the thrill of winning more than the pain of losing. And I think I'm the kind of person who likes the thrill of winning. Of course. The pain of losing. Some people, it's the other way around. But for me, it's for sure like this thrill of winning or yeah. I'm going to define winning as succeeding. Mm-hmm. Like I think it's kind of, you said, driven, goal-oriented of, uh, what you know, I know you? I want to win this thing. I want to accomplish this thing. Or I want to succeed at this thing. Uh, either for myself, for to earlier points, like for my family mm-hmm. or for, you know, at the highest level, like, I don't know, my family, my race, my whatever. <laughs> my team, my city, my whatever, my fraternity, whatever it is I'm representing, my company. I think what drives me is wanting to succeed and represent that well. Like I don't want to lose, to use a Chinese term, to lose face for yeah. my, me or my group or my whatever. Uh, and I think usually that takes, you know, trying hard, doing your best, trying everything you can to get there. Acknowledging that sometimes you get the best process, the best idea, the best execution, and the actual outcome still doesn't come out the way you want, and that's fine as long as you give it your mm-hmm. you know, best effort and your best mm-hmm. best everything. But uh, do you but think, think you succeed there? Uh, at what? You just said you are driven to be successful or that thrilled of being success and mm-hmm. give it the best. Yeah. And I'm curious, do you think you are successful? And then also we have to talk about what is the definition of success for yeah. you in that case? So I think I define success, I think it was, pretty sure it was Warren Buffett that defined success as, I'm going to totally paraphrase here, but um, do the people who you want to love you, love you? Oh, that's so... And just define that narrowly for now as like your wife, in my case, your wife, your kids, your immediate family, like all that. Like there's a lot of people in the world who care about like social media and getting, you know, I don't know, likes and this or or what do you call it? What are the things is like in the Twitter world or the Instagram world and all that stuff? That's all kind of superficial to me, I think. 
I think most important thing is that the people that you want to love you, do they love you, like you, all that stuff. And that's to find you know, your family, your close friends, your network, your people you care about. And by that definition, I think I'm successful in the sense that, you know, I, I prefer to have, uh, I have lots of friends and acquaintances and people I know, but I also have a much narrower group of people, let's call it that, I'm yeah. the most closest to. You know, so that's how I think Buffett was that defined yeah. that way. And that's what I'm always striving to do is to make sure that that core group that I'm defining is the people I want to love me. That's the <laughs> actually best. love me and like me and spend time with me and all that. Yeah, yeah, that's the best definition I have heard. Thank you for... Not mine, it's Warren Buffett's, I think. But yeah. still, yeah. that was <laughs> brilliant. Wow. And I think other types of success that sometimes the media or other people might like money or prestige or whatever, all that stuff... It's not that that's not good because that enables you to then spend time with your family or spend money on your yeah. family to, to, for experiences and doing things. Uh, but it's not the ultimate you know, measure of success, I would say. It's, you know, that's a, a thing that gets you to the ulti- other success. You know? Talk about ultimate measure. What is the ultimate, maybe something that we hope to live on this planet? One day when we're all long gone, what is something you want to leave or the impact? Or you, when people think about you, what do you want he or she remember you by? So I think there's probably one main thing is like my favorite person in my life still is my maternal grandmother uh, who passed away, I don't know, 15 years ago, maybe. Oh. Her name was Alice. Uh, she was born in, uh, in uh, Hubei in China oh. and was one of the first women to go to college in the 30s and 40s, I guess it was. In China? In China, yeah. And then um, anyway, so she had an awesome life. She was my favorite person ever. What do you like say. about her? Uh, she was my grandmother, so mm-hmm. she loved me, she fed me, she nurtured <laughs> me, she scolded me, she, yeah. she, I don't want to say parented me, but she was almost like another parent. Yeah. Uh, what is I one, guess she was. What is one character that yeah, you inspired by Yeah, I think the about character her? about her I think I liked the most, and this is what I'm trying to aspire to be, is um, she just cared so much about everybody. Like strangers or friends or family, always trying to feed them, always trying to accommodate them, always trying to find things for them or make connections, referring them to people. And as an investor, a lot of what we do is make referrals amongst other people, other all that. And that's something that she was innately good at 100 years ago, let's say, or whenever she was doing this. Uh, I, I think that's something that she just did. She just was naturally a people connector, naturally a people helper. I want to say pleaser, people helper. People to, leader. Leader. You're always trying to get people together for yeah. events or social things or dinner, lunch, whatever. And that's always you, Always trying Vince. to bring people together. So I think that's what I liked about her as a grandmother, and I saw her a lot, uh, visiting her in Taiwan, she eventually moved to the United States, things like that. Uh, so to answer your question, I think in terms of what I would define is, I would hope that, you know, both as a father, as a husband, mm-hmm. as a brother, as a cousin, as a, a, a grandson, whatever, as a family member, and as a professional, let's say, that I was helpful to people. Um, not necessarily that I'm trying to get any benefit out of it, but just helpful people just to be helpful. Like, yeah. I think another saying that I have no idea who you attribute to is that, Sometimes the biggest gift is giving someone a gift. Like you get more pleasure, you derive more yeah, joy out of giving someone a gift yeah. than like receiving a gift. Mm-hmm. Even though people think they want, 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 mm-hmm. they want to give, give, give. Like actually giving or donating your time, your money, your whatever it is. Uh, and sometimes the most valuable thing you donate is your time yeah. to be with a friend or to volunteer to do something. Uh, I think that giving nature, I think it truly is something that's happening. I definitely feel best like, you know, when I, take my nephew or niece to an amusement park or buy them a, a doll. Like one thing I have with my nieces and nephews, all of them now uh, on both sides of our family is every single one of them when they're born, we buy them a Build-A-Bear. <laughs> it's like a tradition we have going. Build-A-Bear? A little Build-A-Bear doll that you go to the mall and build. Oh, sorry. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. And so like we started that like my first niece or nephew many years ago and now it's continued with every niece and nephew and just love like when their parents, my you know, my brothers or sisters or sister in laws and them right. send us pictures of the baby with the doll or doing things with it. Like that gives me more joy than like someone giving me a gift. <laughs> and so similarly I like to if I can give. Yeah. Give uh give through, you know, referrals or introductions, give through time, give through other other means, whatever it might be, uh, to help people, help support people. Yeah. So that's if anything I could be remembered for, I guess it would be that. And you are, Vince. You're such a people leader. I know I, you know, just met you for a few weeks, months, but every time I see you, you're always so generous with your time with you, and you always detail in your attention regarding how you can show up to supporting me on this podcast, on this platform, share your knowledge, your insight. That's incredible. Yeah. So let's talk about the the transition from the start to the VC world. What is the biggest 
surprise to you in that process? Yeah, so there's a few things there. I would say. Yeah. Um, so most of my career until the last almost a year now as an investor uh, has been spent doing things mm. like operating, entrepreneur, starting things, uh, fixing things in the corporate structuring world. Like kind of like there's a problem, there's something or something needs to be done. Let's go get stuff done. Let's yeah. mobilize people. Let's like roll up our sleeves and go do things. You're a hustler. Mm-hmm. Get it done. And that's been my entire career up to this point. As an investor, you're still obviously hustling, getting things done all the time. But it's a very different form of you doing it through other people. You're doing it through investor, or sorry, through portfolio companies as an investor. Um, I kind of draw the analogy of it's um, two things. One analogy is it's like being an uncle to lots of companies <laughs> instead of a dad to one company as an entrepreneur. I love that analogy. So a dad is in charge of the daily care and feeding for a child. Has to keep them alive. Has to feed them. Has to train them. Has to discipline them. Has to pay for their college. Has to pay for their braces. All this stuff is a dad. But you can be a dad to only a few kids well, or one kid well, let's say. An uncle doesn't have to worry about all that stuff or the day-to-day stuff. They just get to come in once in a while and you know play with the kids <laughs> uh, and do fun things and, and, and learn some parts of them, right? Uh. And so I think that's the difference as an investor. We're kind of an uncle to many, many companies at a time versus an entrepreneur operator, you're kind of mm-hmm. a dad to one company mm-hmm. at a time in general. I love so that. So there's that transition. The other big transition I would say is, uh, going from like this, use the sports analogies we've been using before, uh, being like a player on the field, especially the early days of entrepreneurship, to being a coach on the field, uh, where you're coaching your teams, you got teams of people, but you're kind of coaching and playing for that team. And then as an investor, you're not even a coach, I would say, you're like a general manager who's investing in the teams and picking the teams <laughs> and picking who's going to lead the, not picking who's going to lead the teams, but sort of involved in sort of the more strategic parts of the team, yeah. so to speak, rather than sort of the day-to-day execution of the team yeah. as a player or a coach. Mm-hmm. And that's a transition that uh, uh, was, a, I want to say, a surprise for me, but sort of something I had to naturally uh, learn how to do is uh, my nature is to, like, in the past, want to drill in on everything to try to solve a problem or accomplish a goal. Uh, for a company, let's say, mm-hmm. uh, and then follow sometimes drilling, 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 drilling to mm-hmm. get to the root issue or the root way to get to something. Versus as an investor, we're sort of taking a uh, um, above the fray, as someone uh, as Cypress Growth Capital says, mm-hmm. a look at things, trying to understand the kind of force, the entire force instead mm-hmm. of each individual tree. And therefore, you ask different types of questions, you approach things differently, you you uh, you know, have a different role in a company than you do as a operational executor mm-hmm. or doer or process generator or whatever. Uh, so that's been different. Uh, I would say the fun parts of being an investor versus entrepreneur operator is just from an intellectual stimulation standpoint, uh, especially given what Cypress Growth Capital does, where we invest uh, in lots of different types of vertical markets yeah. or industries or technologies. More. Every day you're learning about new things, about cybersecurity and about generative AI and about legal tech and the medical industry and how hospitals are run. Uh, learning about new technologies, new companies, new things all the time from talking to so many entrepreneurs every day versus when you're in one company for a long time, you become a very deep expert at one, let's just say generically, one technology, one product, one company, one industry, one market, uh, almost to a fault where you're not getting the same stimulation of learning from other things Mm -hmm. uh, that you get when you're kind of across the spectrum, if you will. And you get that more as an investor, of course, uh, in your daily life. Uh, of learning different business models, different types of companies and all that. Yeah. Uh, and the kind of intellectual stimulation of structuring different capital strategies, different go-to-market strategies, different product strategies for different types of companies uh, versus just doing all that for one company. Mm-hmm. And coming from a startup uh, space yourself, a doer yourself, and now in the general manager space, uh, what is a couple of things or one thing you wish you know before? Well, maybe you say today as a VC uh, uh, space, you wish founders understand about VC when it comes to raising or yeah. capital? I think um, I think a lot of times the entrepreneurs, especially the earlier stages, are very fixated on um, getting the exact right business plan, the exact right model, the exact right pitch deck, whatever. At some point, this is true of any, let's call it speech or anything you do. Yeah. No one really listens to or can hear or remembers everything you actually verbally said. They mm-hmm. remember more kind of like how you came across or your mood or did you make them feel good? Were you funny? Were you engaging? All that kind of stuff. That's more memorable than like the actual bullet points, the actual content of what you actually said. Yeah. Again, that's not even in a pitch deck, just in general. Yeah. In any speech or whatever you see, totally. people remember kind of the, the feeling and all that more than they do the actual yeah. actual text or content. 
And so I think people spend sometimes too much time on that, mm. and they should spend more time sort of just learning how to connect. Like I was saying earlier, connect with the potential the investor, mm-hmm. building that relationship. Like I want to understand who you actually are as a person. Mm-hmm. Kind of same question you're asking me. Yeah. Like what motivates you? Yeah. Uh, you know how you know how you dealt with issues, or res- you know how resilient are you on things? Because you're going to have to be resilient mm-hmm. at a startup. There's always going to be. It's never just a straight line up. It's sort of a bumpy road. Yeah. But the net trajectory is up. Yeah. But it's like up, up, down, up, up, down. And you got to deal with the downs too. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we talked about earlier with the recession at the first company yeah. or, you know, other things like that. And so uh, I think that's something they, they miss. Sometimes they're a little bit too formulaic mm-hmm. in their presentation and how they think about it. And they think that we're trying to be formulaic as well. Mm-hmm. But, you know, we look at hundreds of companies and not a thousand companies a year sometimes. And we only invest in four or five a year, maybe six. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's not a numbers game or a spreadsheet game necessarily. It's sort of a getting back to the feeling mm-hmm. of the company mm-hmm. and the entrepreneur. And mm-hmm. there's obviously the underlying metrics that matter, like revenue and of growth course. and margins and things like that. Of course. But fundamentally, we're trying to see, will this company and this leader or mm-hmm. leader group of leaders be able to take this company from X to Y? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's that's less about spreadsheets and less about all that. It's more about just the, the person that's so and, and their background and their their uh their go forward yeah so. and talking about building a, a a trusting relationships how do you now you in a both sides how do you light or advising startup uh, founders to approach to build a relationship with you is it through like hey Vince, love the podcast love to grab a coffee with you like how do you actually recommend the way the founder can actually do that in an authentic way not just you but many other leaders in the space yeah so i think all investors, I've only been an investor for seven months, but I want to speak for all of them in this case. <laughs> in general, if you're an investor, it's because you like talking to entrepreneurs. You're generally a more social person who is really happy to take like a 30-minute coffee or a 30-minute Google Meet or Zoom meeting or whatever, or just meet people. And you're trying to always, like, to my earlier point, the stimulation you get from learning about other people's interests and companies and what they're doing. So generally speaking, they're not, they shouldn't be a scary thing to reach out to because they want to their job is to go talk to lots of people. Yeah. And so you raising your hand saying, do you want to meet is generally a good thing. I think what turns off the investors is when you get an email or whatever that appears to be a basically spam or they sent the same email to a thousand people. Mm. And, and you can tell, yeah, right? We prefer, I think in general, the kind of warm intro from someone, which is, that's nothing new. I'm just saying a warm intro from someone that we might mutually know for sure helps. If it's not a warm intro, which most of the time is not a warm intro, uh, just showing that you actually took the time to understand that, hey, this might actually be a fit. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes you just need to talk and see if it's a fit or not. But at least at the high level, you researched our website, which is yeah. not that hard to do these days. <laughs> you know, cypressgrowthcapital.com in this case. Yeah. You at least research it, understand kind of generally speaking, like we don't invest in these states. Or we don't mm-hmm. invest in this or that, but we mm-hmm. invest in this type of region or this type of thing. Mm-hmm. At least have done that research so you understand uh, whether it's us or someone else, like what we do mm-hmm. and who we like to invest in, look at our other portfolio companies, mm-hmm. see if there's any parallels there. Uh, it's no different than like applying for a job. Like you should yeah. research on the company and the person yeah. you interview before great you advice. reach out. If you do that, you, you're better off like sending like, I don't know, 20 emails this week to 20 that you've really kind of researched and understand that seem like there's a, some kind of fit, whether with the investor or the company, the firm, yeah. then it's trying to send out a thousand emails that are just random emails and, you turn off those 20 people that might actually be interested in you. It's not about numbers. Uh, yeah, I love I that. think that's that's a big issue we see. And I think the other part is that um, just like every company and every entrepreneur is different, every investor, the firms and the people are different as well. Of course. So just like the investor should get to know the uniqueness of the entrepreneur and the company and everything, the entrepreneur should get to know kind of what's unique about every firm. Because high level, a lot of them do the same thing. Uh, venture firms, investment firms are doing High level, we're trying to deploy capital into growing companies or help them grow. But how we do it, the approach can be different. Like at Cyprus, everybody is like me as a former entrepreneur, former operator. So we tend to spend more time trying to understand uh, the fundamentals of the business, the market, how they plan to grow, you know, the growth strategies on product, grow, go to market, things like that. Way more than we spend, like on some companies might, on the pure financials. We obviously assess and spend a lot of time looking at the financials at LTV, CAC, and gross margins, and payback periods, and all the financial measures that might matter. But we also spend an order amount of time, a disproportionate amount of time, I would say, uh, really trying to understand the fundamental business and how they're going to grow, and do they have the ability to um, you know, really be disruptive mm-hmm. and scale quickly, mm-hmm. not just sort of grow incrementally or whatever yeah. uh, in a rising tide market, in a you know something that really people really need uh, in, in a business setting. 
uh, not just something that's kind of nice to have, you know? Right. And so we spent a lot more time doing that. And if you get to understand us about that, then you would kind of tailor the way you talk to us differently than if you think we're trying to look at a spreadsheet. Great. You know, so that's great insight. And that's yeah. us. Other people are different too. So it's just mm. trying to understand who that who that investor is and what their mm. what their thesis is in general. Great. So my last question uh, to you is: Today, come a long journey. I'm curious, what does American dream mean for you? Given that you mentioned your upbringing from an immigrant family, and yeah. today you accomplish so many amazing success. Yeah, I would say that the for me the American dream. So I was born in California. Uh, my parents uh, are from Taiwan, so in my family circles, I know a lot of people who are either still in Asia, are recent immigrants or fairly recent immigrants, and then tons of people were born in America like me. So kind of the spectrum, I feel like I sort Everybody. of a good, good spectrum of both sides of that. And I think the common thing that they all want is, and the common thing for anybody who has children, I would say, is they want their children to have a better life than them. Uh, it's why, like, my parents moved to the U.S. One on the table is to get the education, better education, but that was supposed to lead to a better life for them that will lead to a better life for their kids, that will lead to a better life for their grandkids, et cetera. And I think that that's something that the American dream is supposed to be, is that it's supposed to be the land of opportunity for everyone. And this is not to get too political, but not necessarily the land of equal outcome for everybody. You have to put in the work, you have to do the, mm-hmm. do the work to get to the outcome you want, mm-hmm. but at least everyone should have an opportunity to mm-hmm. do certain things, to get access mm-hmm. to education, to you know, basic needs like food, shelter, whatever, health care, things like that. Uh, but then in terms of what the actual outcome is, once everyone's had that chance and the opportunity to do it, that should be on you and your network and your mm-hmm. team and in some cases a support network from either companies or the government or other people or whatever help you get there. Mm-hmm. But you still need to determine success. Like what you guys are doing here at the uh, your institute, I think is a great example of that. You're giving them the opportunity to hear from people, do certain things, get exposed to things, get examples of pitch decks or examples of things that they can help them. But that's just giving them the opportunity to have access to all that. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's on the entrepreneur to go do the work, to go execute, to go put in the hours, to go figure things out on their own. You're not going to do that for them, I don't think. <laughs> right? And so I think you kind of epitomize that. Like the American dream is everyone has a chance to go start a company or grow yeah. something in this case. Yeah. And you're giving them the tools to do that, but they have to go do it themselves. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's what America means to me is sort of, we give everyone a chance to do that, the opportunity. I love that. Um, and give them the tools and the guidance and sometimes the the kick in the butt if you need to go encourage <laughs> someone to go do something. But ultimately, they have to go do it themselves. Yeah. Vance, I want to acknowledge you. Wow, what a journey. And you are such a people leader. I feel like what, however you show up, you always show up with 110%. And you speak about hardworking and that is who you are. You've been hustling starting age of 12 in that cafeteria to being an amazing bigger brother for all your siblings and, and then to the startup and to today the VC world. And you always show up 110%. I think that's one of the reasons that founders truly gravitate to you and how you're supporting them. So I want to say thank you so much for being here, being so open, authentic, and share wonderful story with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for hosting. Of course. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in today. I hope you all enjoy as much as I did today. And I cannot wait to see you all next week. Bye, guys.